Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 6, Episode 11, The Dynasties of the North. Thus far we have largely dealt with the northern nomadic peoples of Manchuria and Mongolia from the perspective of the Chinese dynasties with whom they fought. Because the Japanese identified with the agrarian dynasties and regarded nomadic horse riders like the Shanbei and the Xiongnu as barbarians, we have kept our focus on the Tang, the Han, and the Zhou. However, an incredibly massive and significant series of events is coming next season, and we will benefit from expanding our knowledge of the so-called barbarian dynasties and the land that nurtured them. We'll start with the Liao dynasty, whose royal family was composed of Khitan people. According to Chinese sources, the Khitan people descended from the Yuan tribe of the Shanbei and the Kumo Shur, who descended from the Donghu people. These two groups intermingled and began to be known as the Khitan by at least the mid-500s CE when they began to raid the lands of the Northern Qi dynasty. For the next several hundred years, the Khitan lived as fairly typical northern nomads, hunting and raiding for food throughout northern China, as well as tending to herds of reindeer and horses. They acted as a kind of buffer between China and the Turkic groups who lived to their north, and went back and forth allying with either the latest Chinese dynasty or the latest Turkic empire, depending on circumstances. They tangled quite a bit with famous rebel An Lushan before, during, and after his famous rebellion during the late Tang dynasty, frequently handing defeats to the Goturk general and his Chinese troops. They felt his wrath, however, when he waged an all-out seek-and-destroy campaign with an army 200,000 strong which included some of the Khitan's rival tribes hired as auxiliaries. An Lushan used his war with the Khitans as a pretense for accumulating many troops in his army, which he would later use against the Tang dynasty in his rebellion. It took the Khitans some time to recover their numbers after their crushing losses to An Lushan, and their neighbors were not idle in the meantime. Luckily, the second Turkic Khaganate was defeated by the emerging Uyghur Khaganate in 745, and the Uyghurs, who are also a Turkic people, were more interested in commerce and trade than costly tributes. With China immeasurably weakened by An Lushan's rebellion, and their new overlords focused on improving trade within their burgeoning empire, the Khitans lived in relative peace for some time. By the end of the century, they were numerous enough to resume raiding Tang Dynasty territory, though in 795 a large Khitan army was defeated by the Chinese, and they swore allegiance to the Tang court once more. The 800s saw a few attempts at rebellion, but none were successful. In 901, however, a talented young man named Abauji was made the chief of the Yila clan. While the Yaolian clan had maintained a monopoly on the office of Great Khan, ruler of all the Khitans, since the mid-700s, there was a growing dissatisfaction within the nation, led largely by the leaders of the Yila clan, for a more aggressive posture towards China. 
In 903, Abauji was granted the office of Uyue, the leading general of the Khitan nation, an office with only the great Khan ranked above it. This appointment was probably an attempt by the Yaolian clan to co-opt this popular firebrand and gain his favor, but Abauji had his sights set quite a bit higher. Throughout the early 900s, when the Tang dynasty was in twilight and divisions started to solidify within unified China, Abaoji led repeated raids into areas of northern China, and in 905 he even managed to forge a brotherhood with Li Keyong, a military governor of Shatuo Turk origin working for the Tang, who had hoped to seize the crumbling empire from Zhu Wen's iron grip. In 907, with his military expertise and talent for diplomacy fully established, Abauji presented himself before the noble council of the Khitans and demanded to be named as Kagan, the Great Khan. The current Great Khan did not dare to object, and the council ratified Abauji's appointment. Then, all hell broke loose. As the Tang Empire's collapse finalized, several of Abauji's ambitious relatives raised troops and sought him out on the battlefield in a series of civil disturbances over the next nine years. While other rulers may have used this as an opportunity to kill their defeated enemies, either on the battlefield or by execution, Abauji focused on diplomacy as much as possible and convinced many of his relatives that the best way forward, both for themselves personally and for the Khitan people, was to establish their own imperial dynasty. In 916, the infighting subsided and Abauji announced the birth of the Liao dynasty. Especially notable about the Liao and of Abauji's reign was the innovation of dual administration. This came about after he took the Khitan army on an expansionist campaign and completed the conquest of Balhai in 926. For the heavily urban population of Balhai, now under their authority, they created a bureaucratic government of a similar type to that of a typical Chinese dynasty. The nomadic groups who paid tribute and swore vassalage to the Khitan kept their usual tribal government structures. This meant that the Liao dynasty could collect the tribute from both its urban and nomadic subjects and maintain their political dominance over the Turkic, Tungusic, and Proto-Mongolic peoples throughout their domain. After the conquest of Balhai, a puppet state was set up called the Dongdan Kingdom, and Abauji's son, Yalu Bey, was made its king. This became a problem when Abauji died in 927, and his wife supported the ascension of Bei's younger brother, Yelu Deguang. It seemed that the queen believed Yelu Bei had too many Chinese mannerisms to be taken seriously by the tribal elite, who could make life for the imperial family difficult if they disapproved of the new emperor. Emperor Taizong of Liao greatly disliked having his older brother in a similar position of authority, even if he was merely a figurehead ruler of a puppet state. Ye Lu Bei seems to have picked up on these vibes and, after obeying his brother's order to relocate the Dongdong Kingdom's government to western Manchuria, he fled to the later Tang dynasty in northern China for asylum in 930. After the later Tang repeatedly refused every demand from the Liao to turn over the defector, 
war erupted within that successor dynasty, and the Khitan supported General Shur Jingtang, a man who had previously faced them on the battlefield but who now had rebelled. He promised to cede to them the sixteen prefectures of the north if they joined him and he was successful in his overthrow, and Emperor Taizong jumped at the chance, sending the Liao army south to crush the later Tang, which they did. In 937, the later Jin dynasty was established, Shurjing Tang assassinated Yelu Bei, and the sixteen prefectures were now under Liao control. They expanded their bureaucratic administration to also oversee the sixteen prefectures, which would remain under their control for the duration of their dynasty's existence. Land-wise, the Liao Empire was impressively large, stretching from the eastern coast of Siberia and Manchuria all the way into Central Asia at its greatest extent around 1000 CE. They occasionally skirmished with their nomadic neighbors like the Uyghurs to their east and the Kyrgyz to their north, as well as the agrarian kingdom of Goryeo on their eastern flank, but they also made lasting contributions to Chinese art and culture. Emperor Daozong sponsored the building of the Sakyamuni Pagoda of Fodong Temple in 1056, which was constructed entirely of wood and still stands today in spite of many earthquakes and natural disasters over the years. While the tribal religion of the Khitans appears to have revolved around sun and fire worship, the Liao dynasty had to straddle the competing interests of their diverse populations, and so Buddhism and Taoism also thrived under their leadership in the places where they were practiced. Women among the Khitan tribes learned horse riding and archery along with the men, and it appears that they, along with many other tribal peoples in northern Asia, did not have a stigma against sex for either men or women. This was shared by the Jurchen people, who even had a custom of providing honored visitors with sexual companions, who would themselves eventually go on to marry other people, without any kind of shame attached. This stands in stark contrast to the general attitude of the rest of China at the time, especially under the Song dynasty. It must have been difficult for the Liao sovereigns to walk such a fine line with their two very different populations of subjects. If they presented themselves too much as a nomad, the urban subjects might revolt. If they appeared too similar to a soft Chinese emperor, the various nomadic groups might rebel or, worse, supplant them. The conflicts that began by the Khitan envoy's abuse of the Jurchen visitor privileges was, in many ways, inevitable. By the time the war with the Jurchens began, the Liao sovereigns had been losing ground for years. The devastation from many natural disasters combined with pressure from their subordinate tributary states to help in their efforts against the Song dynasty led to the Liao emperor resorting to marrying his daughters to various unhappy tribal leaders as well as the nobility of western Xia, a Tangut state situated in the northwest of the Song empire's borders. A Jurchen tribe called the Wanyan proceeded to recruit disaffected warriors from the other tribes, particularly those who were angry with the tyranny of the Liao dynasty, but whose former leaders had refused to offer resistance. Some Jurchen troops, it should be noted, had previously attempted to resist Khitan hegemony, but without success. At least two such rebellions were staged in the late 900s, and in the early 1000s the Jurchens had allied with Goryeo during one of their conflicts with the Liao, hoping the victory of their Korean neighbors might result in their own independence. 
Goryeo had lost that particular engagement, however, and so the Khitans retained their supremacy for another hundred years. In 1114, Wanyan Aguda attacked Liao dynasty strongholds throughout Jurchen territory. The ensuing war lasted until 1125 when the Jin army, after having driven the remaining Liao army deep into Central Asia, captured Emperor Tianzuo, the last emperor of the Liao dynasty. The remaining Khitans and their partisans established a new state in Central Asia called Kara-Kitai. As a side note, if you've ever read older relevant British sources, they frequently refer to China as Cathay. This is because the Kara-Kitai developed political and trade relations with Eastern Europe, and the name Cathay is a derivation of Kitai. As the Jin dynasty became established as the conquering successors to the Liao, the Song dynasty was hopeful that the 16 prefectures would soon be returned to their domain. The residents of those 16 prefectures, however, were less eager to be reunited with their fellow Han. The Liao dynasty had recruited Han nobles of the 16 prefectures to serve within the bureaucratic framework of their dual administration. The Song dynasty considered these nobles traitors, regardless of their ethnicity, and if they managed to regain control of the region, then political purges, potentially including executions, would not be far behind. Thus, the northern Han nobles appealed to the Jin dynasty to keep them under Jurchen protection and not hand them over to the Song. There was also an incident in 1123 in which a military governor named Zhang Zhue, who had served under the Liao but renounced them, had murdered a Jin dynasty representative and attempted to hand over the city of Yanjing to the Song dynasty. The Jin invaded and defeated Zhang Zhue's armies, but he fled south and presented himself to the Song court, who imprisoned him. A new treaty of alliance, which had just been ratified earlier that year, specifically forbade either faction from harboring defectors and traitors, and the Jin angrily demanded that Zhang Zhue be brought to justice. While the Song dynasty did eventually have him executed, the delay enraged the Jurchens, and some probably believed that the Song dynasty was planning a future invasion of their territory with Zhang Zhue at the head of their armies. Had the Song army acquitted itself more impressively in their war against the Liao dynasty, the Jin may have been more hesitant to turn against them. However, their personal experience with the armed forces of the Song dynasty only emboldened their own commanders at the idea of snatching up some of that sweet, sweet Song territory. The incident with Zhang Jue gave them all the pretense they needed for war. Emperor... <sighs> Taizu of Jin had died in 1123 and was succeeded by his brother, who is remembered as Emperor Taizong. In 1125, several months after the war against the Liao ended, the Jin dynasty officially declared war on Song China. For the Song dynasty, the year 1126 was, to use the historically correct terminology, extremely bad. The year began with their former allies, the Jurchens, dispatching two large armies into their domains from the north. One army arrived at the city of Taiyuan and besieged it, with the further intention of marching onward to Luoyang once Taiyuan was taken. The second army was deployed further east and marched towards Kaifeng, the luminous capital city. 
Just before the Jin army arrived at Kaifeng, there was a change of leadership in the Song government, as Emperor Huizong tried to convince his oldest son, Zhao Huan, to take the throne in his stead. The stories say that Zhao Huan refused to take the office, and that eventually the court eunuchs had to forcibly set him upon the throne before he finally acquiesced. Emperor Huizong abdicated and headed for the hills, leaving the newly crowned Emperor Qinzong to deal with the Jin dynasty. Emperor Qinzong did not know what to do. No, I mean, he literally had no idea what the best course of action was, which left him vulnerable to the various factions at court trying to convince him to join their side. The capital, Kaifeng, was besieged at the end of January. Rather than choose a single course and expend the nation's resources pursuing that particular end, he seems to have tried to choose all of them. The Jurchen sent envoys offering to break their siege under the conditions that the Song dynasty submit to them as a vassal state, hand over several high-ranking hostages, including members of the imperial family, cede control of the three northern provinces which the Jin would annex, and pay a massive indemnity of silk, silver, livestock, horses, and other such goods. They had already been paying a tribute to the Jin, but this indemnity was equal to 180 years' worth of their current tribute, a massive sum. The Chancellor, Li Gong, led the faction at court which favored fighting the invaders. After some of the capital garrison attempted an ambush against the Jin besiegers one night, which ended in disaster for the Song troops, Li Gong's faction fell out of favor, and the Emperor heeded those who pressed him to accept the outrageous Jurchen demands. Emperor Qinzong agreed to this deal, and the Jin troops lifted the siege in early March, 33 days after it began. The new emperor was not off to a great start, and seems to have felt very keenly that he absolutely could not begin his reign with such a shameful defeat. Almost immediately after the Jurchen army had departed from Kaifeng, he reorganized the military and sent two armies north to punish the barbarians. This redeployment meant that many of the troops and their officers who were inside the city during the siege were now either sent north or relocated to different parts of the country. The Song armies did about as well as you might expect. They were utterly crushed by the Jin forces, who now had even more of a pretense to renew their assault on the Song dynasty, who had just broken their promise. Taiyuan was still under siege, and another Song army that was dispatched arrived in June to relieve the city only to immediately lose the ensuing battle with the Jurchens. The city was taken in September, and in December, two massive Jin armies converged on the Song capital of Kaifeng. Now again, there was a shuffle at court as the imperial council replaced those ministers who had advised aggressive action, and now the faction who favored appeasement were ascended once more. Emperor Qinzong offered the besieging forces massive amounts of gold, silver, silk, anything they wanted. The capital itself had fewer than 100,000 troops defending it, and the rest of the Song army had been redeployed throughout the country to protect the individual provinces. There would be no relieving force, no hero to arrive just in time and save the day. While there is some evidence that the Jin had trouble with the massive walls of Kaifeng during their first attempted siege at the beginning of 1126, it seems they conceived some clever new ways to assault them. 
they built siege towers, some large enough to allow large groups of soldiers to stream onto the walls, and some that were much taller than the walls from which grenadiers would rain explosive bombs into the city below. The walls were taken in early January of 1127, and Kaifeng was mercilessly sacked. Jurchen troops rode through the city looting, pillaging, raping, and murdering, while Emperor Qinzong continued to try and convince them that this was all a misunderstanding. He emptied the imperial treasury, inviting them to take as much as they liked and then leave, but anyone could see that it was too late for that. Shortly thereafter, Emperor Qinzong finally accepted his fate and surrendered unconditionally. Kaifeng had fallen. In the aftermath of what is now called the Jinkong Incident, Emperor Qinzong was taken prisoner along with most of the imperial family as well as retired Emperor Huizong. The Jin forced the captured Song nobles to marry Jurchen wives and took the noble Song wives as concubines to be distributed among the Jurchen aristocracy. Able-bodied men were taken as slaves and the capital was ransacked without pity. As bad as things were, and they were incredibly bad, all hope was not lost for the Song dynasty. One of Emperor Qinzong's younger brothers, the 23-year-old Zhao Guo, had escaped the carnage of Kaifeng and managed to stay one step ahead of the Jin armies, which were still pressing into Song lands to the south of the capital. The ninth son of Emperor Huizong, who probably never expected this job to fall into his lap, was crowned as the new sovereign of the Song dynasty and is remembered as Emperor Gaozong. As for the unfortunate emperors who had been taken prisoner, they had a long, difficult life in exile ahead of them. They were officially stripped of their royal status and made commoners by the Jin dynasty, then later granted demeaning titles for the Jin emperor's amusement. Emperor Huizong died in 1135 at the age of 52, and Emperor Qinzong would live until 1161, spending two-thirds of his life in the captivity of his enemies. The sacking of Kaifeng is used by historians as a dividing mark between eras of the Song dynasty. The first part, from 960 until 1127, is retroactively referred to as the Northern Song dynasty, and the period after 1127 is the Southern Song dynasty. We will catch up with the Southern Song next season and see how they fare among the remaining trade cities they controlled in South China. Next time, we will learn about the developments of the Goryeo dynasty as they grappled with threats from outside and from within. 